All right, y'all, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, good to see everybody. I'm glad y'all made it tonight. So this is week, so, yeah, who knows, it's, it's more than one. Uh, week seven, is that right? Week seven, okay, so week seven, uh, we've got two more weeks. Uh, and so tonight, uh, what we're gonna be looking at is our, uh, our sixth mark, uh, which is uh, the, the disciple who is ready for Monday shares the gospel in word and deed. Uh, which is not shares the gospel in word indeed, but in word and deed. And that is an important distinction which we'll get into tonight. Uh, but just as a recap, again, I think I've said this every time I uh, teach this lecture, is that what we've been looking at is what it means to be a disciple, uh, a whole and influential disciple that is ready for Monday, is one who lives out these seven marks that we've been exploring. The first mark being they, we take up our cross. And part of what that means is that we come to believe and trust in the good news of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection as our only hope in life and death. This is a message that we don't simply believe once, but continue to live out in its implications and fullness. So we take up our cross. The second is that we put on the yoke. The yoke being this metaphor of a life of discipleship lived with and for Jesus in all of life. Uh, we also see that a disciple ready for Monday builds their life on the Bible, that the scriptures are not simply helpful religious guidelines, uh, but it is the framework upon which all of life is understood. It's the lens through which we see all of reality. Uh, we also see that the, the, the disciples ready for Monday loves the local church, is committed to the local body, and believes that God's primary plan A mission of bringing redemption and restoration to the world is through the church. And then last week, I believe, uh, we looked at how uh, we begin this, this three-part series in the city value uh, of, of giving ourselves away. A disciple who's ready for Monday gives themselves away. And we saw last week how we do that by living generously. That as we reflect the character of God, who is a generous outpourer, a constant outpourer, uh, we are most like God when we live generously. And tonight we turn our attention uh, to this third, the second part of the city value, what it means to give ourselves away. A disciple who is ready for Monday shares the gospel in word and deed. And, and this is where I, I want to, we don't have enough tension in our lives, so I want to create some tension for us. Uh, what I want to do, and, and I used to do this, uh, you'll, you'll be glad that I don't do this now, but I used to actually have people stand up and choose a side of, of do you agree or disagree with this statement? Uh, I think we have enough polarization in our culture, let's, let's not do that tonight, but, but it is a fun exercise. Uh, but here's what I want us to do. I want us to think about this question. What is the mission of the church? When we think about what the church has been called to do and who she is called to be, uh, what is the mission of the church? And in gross generalizations, there tends to be this two, these two sides of the, this conversation. That the church should be primarily, largely, about the work of, of, of evangelism, of, of sharing the gospel, of, of personal transformation. And on the other side, you have people say, well, I mean, that's important, but, but really the church needs to be about, about caring for the physical needs of others, loving our neighbor, caring about matters of justice, being engaged and involved in matters that pertain to and affect our neighbors. We should be about the work of cultural transformation. And so on one side, again, gross generalizations, but on one side you have personal transformation. We should be about evangelism and discipleship. And on this side, you have cultural transformation, matters of, of justice and care and compassion and mercy. And, and what's so unfortunate 
is that that, that is the wrong question to ask. And, and we reframe it in such a way as though they are mutually exclusive, as if they can't be or shouldn't be mended or, and welded together. And so often churches tend to emphasize one over the other, or sometimes emphasizing one at the exclusion or at the expense of the other. And there is not a fullness to what it means to live out the, a life as a disciple of Jesus and as the mission of the church. And so when we ask this question, should we be more focused on evangelism or discipleship, or should we be more concerned about um, caring for our neighbor's needs and matters of justice, it's, it's an unnecessary division and wedge that I don't believe the scriptures allow us to have in our understanding of the mission of the church. Which is why the kind of the big idea for tonight that we're going to look at is part of what it means to be people who believe the gospel. We, we share this good news, but the gospel should be heard on Monday. The gospel should be seen and heard on Monday. That's kind of the big idea I want us to uh, uh, unpack together tonight, that the gospel should be seen and heard on Monday. And what we're going to look at, there, there's kind of three uh, main points. If you're taking notes, um, what we're going to look at is first the both and mission uh, that we are sent to on Monday. The both and mission that we are sent to on Monday. The second point we're going to look at is the obstacles we face on Monday. And third, the practices we need for Monday. So as we think about sharing the gospel in word and deed, we're going to look at the both and mission that we are sent to on Monday the obstacles we face on Monday, and the practices we need for Monday. The practices we need for Monday. So uh, let, me, let me erase this. So again, our big idea, the gospel should be seen and heard on Monday. That's what we're unpacking tonight. And so this first point I want us to look at uh, is the both and mission. We are sent to on Monday. So this is our first big point that we're going to look at tonight, okay? And so here's, here's what I want to ask us, and this is where I, I do want your interaction and, and, and feedback here, is when you hear the word mission, just in general, whether you're thinking about it from a church perspective or uh, a Tom Cruise Mission Impossible perspective, uh, what comes to mind, maybe it was Tom Cruise, but what comes to mind when you hear the word mission? What, what are some categories, some synonyms, pictures you have in your mind? Yeah, Joe. Objectives, okay? So there's a particular, um, a clear objective maybe given to you. There's an implication or an assumption that it's given to you by someone, but there's a clear objective that you're seeking to accomplish. That's great. What else? What else comes to mind? Think about the word mission. Particular people. Okay, yeah. So. Bad people, good guys, bad guys. Yeah, yeah. So you, if you're thinking in terms of, you know, like Chuck Norris movies, I don't know why I referenced Chuck Norris. I haven't seen a Chuck Norris movie in 20 years. <laughs> Uh, but you think, you think of like there's a mission you're sent on to either go save or rescue the good guys or to bring to justice the bad guys. Yeah, so there's, there's a people in particular attached to the objective you've been called to. Yeah, that's great. What else? What else comes? Say it again, Dan. A cause, yeah. So, so an objective, maybe you, you may not even have like a personal attachment. Like I can be given an objective or I can give an objective, but I don't have any real like personal attachment to it. It's just marching orders. But a cause has a little bit more of this personal investment, like, hey, I, I've bought into this. It's not just something I've been told to do and that I should do, it's that I get to do it. That's, that's, that's great, that's great. What else, what else comes to mind? Say it again, PJ. It's your why, it's your why. oh, that's good. So, so there's this, if you didn't hear what PJ said, it's your why. 
It's your fundamental foundational driving why. Like this is what gets me up in the morning. This is, this is why my heart is beating. This is what makes sense in the world, that even though it may be difficult, even though things are falling apart, this is what drives me. That's a, that's a, that's a, great, that's a great description of it. And again, none of these are, are mutually exclusive or, or counter to one another, because there is an objective to our mission. There is a people. It should be a cause that we're passionate about. It should be something that gets us up out of bed every morning. How about one more? What, what's another association we have with the word mission? Yeah. Making an intentional point of going out and doing something. There's, there, if I could add to what you're saying, Jay, there, there's movement. There, there's, this, there's this assumption that it's not just where you are, which in, which in one sense you could say it's true, but it's like there's this idea of, you're going to get yeah, you're going to be dislocated in some way, in, in a good way. And I think in some ways, I think that is, again, there's, it's, you can't like summarize the, the biblical understanding of mission in one word, but if I had to, I would probably categorize it under the word send or sent. When, when we think about the mission of God very broadly, when we look at the, the biblical narrative, very, very fundamentally, the mission of God is really the mission of God sending both himself, but also his people, his representatives, his, his ambassadors, his prophets, his people on a particular, with, with, a, with a particular quest, objective, cause, and fundamental why. And so, so when you think about it, I mean, even just going back to the beginning, the first people created, Adam and Eve, were sent into a garden. There was a place and there was a cause and an objective, a mission that they were given, sent to the garden to cultivate, to keep, and steward it. And then you come to, to Abraham, and Abraham was called, he was sent from his homeland, from everything that was familiar, and was sent to be the father of a mighty nation who would be a blessing to all nations. You then move to Moses, Moses was sent to Egypt uh, to be the deliverer of God's people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Uh, that leads to the formation of the covenantal people of God of Israel. Israel was sent uh, to be a light to the nations, fulfilling this promise and the mission of Abraham. So like, as the story continues to unfold, the mission becomes a little bit clearer and clearer. You get a bigger picture. In general, it was just Abraham, go, and you're going to be a mighty nation. Okay, great. But it gets a little bit more specific when we get to the people of Israel. And then the prophets were sent. You, you can actually even say Israel was sent into exile. They were sent to Babylon. And even as they were sent into exile, which looks like they're no longer on mission, they actually continue to be on mission, seeking the welfare, the flourishing of the pagan culture of Babylon. The prophets were sent to speak against the sins and the injustices uh, that, that Israel and surrounding nations were complicit in. And then you come to the New Testament, the most important missionary of all, the Lord Jesus. Jesus was sent by God. I mean, one of, our, one of the most familiar uh, verses in all of scripture, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he would send his only son. And so there's this, this movement, this action of sending, of being dislocated, of, of assuming that what you're going to do, as Jenny said, that we're not just staying where we are, but we're going to go somewhere. But what's really interesting is that Jesus is not the last sent one. When, when you, if someone would, would someone turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 21, and would someone else turn to the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses one, verse 1? 
Who's got John 20, verse 21? Who's willing to read that one for us? And who's got Acts 1, 1? Who's got it? Judy? Let's hear it. And so you see this language again, as, as God has, has sent Christ the Son to be the representative of his presence and fulfillment of the mission of the world, he is now sending his disciples. And so you see sending begets sending. And then who, who's got Acts 1.1? One, one? Who's got it? J.D.? Yep. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the second part of a volume that the gospel writer Luke wrote. So the gospel of Luke and Acts are two volumes set meant to be read together. And what, what Acts begins with, he says, I want to remind you, Theophilus, who, who Luke is writing to, uh, of what Jesus, in my first volume, of, I, I informed you of what Jesus began to do and teach. And, and what, what's baked into that sentence is that Luke's gospel is about what Jesus began to do and teach, and the book of the Acts of the Apostles is what Jesus continues to do and teach through his church. Again, we, we miss that when we re, with our, uh, our, the way our New Testament comes together. We have Luke and then John and then Acts. And you may not see that together, but when you read Luke and Acts together, you see what Jesus began to do and teach and continues to do and teach through his church. The church continues to be sent by God on mission for the good of the world and the glory of Christ Jesus. And, and the way I, I try to illustrate this, uh, this is not an illustration that I that can take credit for. It comes from a gal by the name of Amy Sherman, who wrote a book called Kingdom Calling. It's a phenomenal book. Um, but she talks about how the church is less like a cruise ship, which is so often how we tend to view the church. It, it's like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, we're on mission. We're going somewhere. But it's, it's really more about kind of our comfort and our entertainment and having things our way. And yeah, we're going somewhere. But like we think we're on mission, but it's really about our comfort and pleasure. And the church is less like a cruise ship and more like an aircraft carrier. You think about it, what an aircraft carrier is designed to do, it's, it's, its entire design and function and purpose is to be a launching pad, a sending station of, of fighter jets. And a cruise ship def definitely moves, but the idea is just to kind of get on and stay on for your own pleasure and benefit. But a, uh, an aircraft carrier is designed to send people out. And that is the picture we should have of how the church is called and sent on mission. Uh, James K. Smith, he's a Christian philosopher uh, and theologian. And in his book, Awaiting the King, he talks about this very idea of how the church needs to reimagine how she sees uh, her identity and mission. He says this, the church is less a contrast society that we retreat into than it is a recentering community of practice that we are sent from. So you see that idea. We're, we're less of a, of, a, of a cruise ship that we retreat to and more of a sending station that we are sent from. As an imagination station whereby our social imaginary is shaped by the gospel, the church isn't an end in itself, an alternative place, but rather a formational community of the spirit where we are equipped for service. I, I want to say that last line together. The church isn't an end in itself, an alternative place, but rather a formational community of the spirit where we are equipped for service. The local church is the culmination of God's mission throughout human history, and it is the center of God's redemptive plan. 
And this mission is a both and mission, which is what I want to turn to a little bit now. So I'm going to turn this around. If I had to, again, whenever you offer definitions, it feels like very like um, scholastic and very cold, but it's just helpful to have a starting point. And so here's what I would say as, as we talk about the mission of the church is broadly this, that the mission of the church is described in this way. God sends his church to be a faithful and fruitful presence throughout the world, seeking the salvation of the lost and the common good of all. That's a, it's a wordy sentence, but, but this is the way we would kind of summarize and think about what is the mission of our church. In fact, th this is kind of our, the philosophy of how we think about outreach at Christ Community. You'll find this on our website as we think about broadly, what does it mean for the church to exist outside these walls? The mission of the church broadly is understood in this way. God sends his church to be a faithful and fruitful presence throughout the world, seeking the salvation of the lost and the common good of all. And so what you might notice is the operative words and that are in this definition. It is not an either or mission, it is a both and mission. We are called to be faithful and we are called to be fruitful. It does not mean that our fruitfulness is what determines if we are saved or forgiven or declared beloved, but it is part of what it means to live out our identity as followers of Jesus in the church. We are sent throughout the world seeking the salvation of the lost and the common good of all. It is not that we are simply interested in someone's spiritual health and vitality. We are concerned about the whole being because we are created as holistic beings. It is not one over the other. It is a both and mission. And I remember hearing Dr. D.A. Carson. He wasn't one of my seminary professors. He's one of Ben's seminary professors at Trinity. But I remember him talking about, hearing in a lecture, when we talk about the difference, like which one is more important, evangelism or caring for the matters of justice in our world? He says, it's kind of like asking which wing of the plane is more important. It's like, I mean, with, with, without one, uh, if you're missing one, you're not going to have a functioning plane for very long or passengers for that matter. Like you have to have both. Or my favorite kind of contextual illustration is it's like asking, Kansas City people appreciate this, like which, what is it that makes barbecue bar barbecue? Is it the sauce or is it the meat? And the answer is yes, of course. <laughs> Which I remember when, when Megan and I were, were married, she did not like barbecue uh, early on. Don't, don't hold that against her. But, but I remember her, like, the, the reason she didn't like barbecue was the reason I liked barbecue. She was like, how do you like it? It's meat and sauce. And I was like, how do you not like it? It's meat and sauce. You know, I just, I just understand it. So she has finally come to uh, salvation and see the light. She loves barbecue now. But, but again, I think we get so caught up on trying to pit one against the other when what we see in scripture is actually a both and reality. And when we are trying to hold one without the other, it's like trying to clap with one hand. You just look stupid, you know? And, and that's, that's kind of the picture. It's like when we understand the both and mission, it takes two hands to make a sound, to make an impact. But when we hold one over the other, we just look kind of silly, you know? I just came up with that. I, 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 some people can't do it. Can anybody clap with one hand? No way. <laughs> Get out, Hannah. <laughs> it's the both hand mission. No, no. So, but, so here's, here's what I wanted to picture. Uh, the, here's the picture I want us to have in mind as we think about this both hand mission. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 4, and I want to read verses 16 through 21. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. So this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. 
And one of the first things that he is declaring publicly is he is making himself known as the one who's been sent by God on mission. Luke 4, verses 16 through 21. It says, And he came to Nazareth, uh, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus begins his public ministry by reading from Isaiah 61, I believe. Uh, Don't quote me on that. I believe that's what it is. To say, and he's saying something about the scope and the aim of the mission of God. And you see the holistic picture that he didn't just come to say, I have come to proclaim good news and then sit down. But you see a picture of what Jesus, he's continuing the mission that it began in the garden that extended through Abraham to Moses, to the people of Israel. And it is a holistic mission. But also, we need not look any further than the person of Jesus himself to see the both and mission. In, 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 in Matthew, uh, or actually, let me, let me, before I get to that, I kind of jumped ahead. Let me turn to Matthew 4.23. And this is just one example of a few places, or many places in the Gospels, where we see the both and mission again. So Matthew 4, uh, verse 23. We read these words. And he went through all, so this is kind of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, after the temptation narrative. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogue and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then that very beautiful operative word, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so at the beginning, at the outset of Jesus' public ministry, you see this both and reality. And since the church is the bride of Christ, that mission should continue through him. Again, what does what is, what is the author uh, of Luke say as he begins Acts, as J.D. read for us? I, I taught you what Jesus began to do and teach, and now we continue to see it through the church. And since the church, like I said, is the bride of Christ, and Christ himself, who is the incarnate word of God, I mean, in his very person, in his very nature, Jesus is the word of God made flesh, which is absolutely a way to make possible the atonement for sin, for being fully God, he can pay for the penalty of sin. Being man, he can die in our place. But what we see in the person of Jesus being the incarnate word of God, made flesh, is you see the reality of the both and picture of the mission. The reason, the reason why we say that the mission of the church is a both and holistic mission is because the problem that plagues humanity and all of creation is holistic. Does sin only have spiritual ramifications? No. Sin sin impacts every aspect of our lives. There is no part of human culture and society that is untouched by sin. And so if the problem is holistic, then you better believe the solution is holistic. Are, Are you tracking with me? And so that's why the mission we believe and are sent out on Monday for is a both and holistic mission. Uh, Russell Moore, who's one of my seminary professors, Ben, uh, he, he wrote a book called Onward. And in this, he talks about this very principle. He says, where there is sin, no matter the form, the gospel speaks a word. 
This requires a both and approach from the church, recognizing both vertical and horizontal aspects of our sin, both the personal and the social. They go hand in hand. And how much, how much unnecessary strife and division has been caused in the church, in our culture, that stems from a failure to see this both and mission that the church has been called to. And I believe the church finds herself off mission and distracted when she defines sin either purely in personal terms or purely in social terms. But it is a both and reality of sin, which means the mission that brings solution and healing to that problem is also a both and reality. So that is the both and mission of the church uh, that we've kind of laid out here. Let, I want to pause here before we go to our first round of table discussions. Let me pause for questions, comments, thoughts, criticisms, pushback that you guys have up until this point about our both and mission of the church. Okay. So let's do this. Let's go to our tables. Uh, I sent out a reminder email. Hopefully you got that. One of your um, activities in the daily workbook this week was to begin thinking about your capstone project. Uh, if you totally missed that or forgot about that, that is okay. We'll just shame you later. That's totally fine. But, uh, but truly, in all seriousness, uh, if you didn't get to that, uh, just participate in the conversation with your tables. We'll do our memory verse and then our capstone project conversation, and then we'll continue on uh, to point two for tonight's message. All right, here's what I'd like to do. I want, I want to take just a few minutes if any, any brave souls uh, would be willing to share uh, just a synopsis of their capstone project at this, at this juncture. Like what was the, the, the thing you identified that was broken kind of in your world from your perspective and what's a way that you can steward resources uh, to kind of respond to that. So anybody, anybody willing to volunteer? Who's got a good one? I'll go. All right, thanks, Lindsay. <laughs> um, okay, so I'm a stay-at-home mom, so this will probably seem more personal, I guess. But in the long run, here's my here's what I kind of came up with: leveraging being more intentional with homeschooling Avery where she's at right now. I know she's in before, but I noticed that she is better behaved and just more stimulated when I can really get creative with, with things in the house, and that makes me happier because she's not stretching me, mm -hmm. and I can just show up better. So I think this being more intentional with her in that way, and also in the long run, that will mean that she will be able to spread... <laughs> what she learned yeah. into the world but I mean that my world is so small right now because that's all I do no that's <laughs> it's small but it's impactful yeah you know so I'm yeah hoping maybe I can figure something out fun like to do with her I love that I love that yeah, yeah. I, I think that's great that is absolutely I mean it's, it's, don't don't for a second minimize your vocation as a mother okay like truly, it's like I remember hearing somebody once say that, that the most impactful thing that, that we will accomplish in our lives is not something we will do, but someone we will raise. And so I just, just I hope you know that. And that's a beautiful thing. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. How, how about one more? How about one more? Yes, all the way in the back, Nathan. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. What, what, I mean, there's so much I love about that, Nathan, but one thing in particular is that you're giving us a category of stewarding resources in a redemptive way that's about celebration. Like there, that is something I think the people of Jesus, we, we, we don't know how to celebrate well, I think. I think we, we have this like fear, fear of like, well, if we're having too much fun, it's probably sinful, you know? And it's like, and I just, I, don't, I think we have an impoverished understanding of a good theology of celebration. So I think, I think that's, I love it. I'm basically just trying to get myself to come to this steak dinner. I hopefully uh, that I can come, but I, I love it. Well, again, please, please do it. I want you guys to continue to kind of create uh, and, and expand on this. If you have other ideas, br- Bounce them off of one another at your tables or throughout the week. And so I love it. I love it. Okay, so we're going to turn to point two. Uh, so we looked at our both and mission that we're sent to on Monday. We shift now to look at what are the obstacles that we face on Monday, particularly as we think about the obstacles of having the gospel heard and seen in our Monday lives. And, and so we're going to, so we are going to focus a little bit more tonight on sharing the gospel in word. Next week, we'll look a little bit more at how the gospel is seen in deed and how we work diligently for the good of our neighbors. But we're going to focus a little bit the rest of our time on how we share the gospel. And I will, I will be the first to admit, uh, this is an area of my own discipleship and formation that I have not been great at. And historically, Christ's community, we're just, we're just not a very strong evangelistic church in the sense that we create a culture of equipping, encouraging, and sending our people to know how to share the gospel with their neighbors, friends, classmates, and coworkers. And so, I mean, I, I engage in conversations with, with my neighbors and things like that, but we, and we share the gospel clearly on Sundays, but this is an area of great growth for us. And so I am the first to declare, like, we, we need a great deal of improvement in this area, which is why we want to give more attention um, in Church for Monday around this. And so, so I want to spend some time just even asking the question, what are some of the obstacles that we face? Why is, I'm assuming it's difficult for you, but maybe I shouldn't assume that. Um, if, it's, if it's difficult for me, it must be difficult for you. I, I don't want to assume that. That's so pretentious. Uh, but what are the obstacles we face in sharing the gospel with friends, family members, neighbors, etc.? What, what are some obstacles you would mention or name? Mm. True, but we have this like feeling that if we don't know every answer, yeah. that we can't do it. And it's like, it's not us doing it. Totally. So. Totally. There's this pressure of like, I can't even begin. If, I, if I'm not perfect, if I don't have it all mastered, how could I possibly begin to even have this conversation? So, and, and, and in some ways that's, that's a way in which our enemy weaponizes shame to keep us from being uh, conversant. And, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more, Emily, but that's, that's great. I mean, it's not great, but that's a good example. Uh, yeah, well, what else? I thought I saw another hand somewhere. Yeah, Stephen. Oh, Dan, you're ra- advocating for Dan. What makes it, I think people have a perception of Christians. My neighbor is a Roman Catholic. He goes, and I said, well, I, I attend the evangelical church. He goes, oh, you guys all raise your hand. Uh-huh, you uh-huh. And I go, no, about the only time we do on a benediction yeah, yeah, yeah. service. And it's just the perception that people have of Christians. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I don't, I don't know if you heard Dan, but he was talking about it's, it, sometimes the obstacle is the perceptions, whether true or false, yeah. that people have of Christians that prevents them from engaging in conversation. Sir, and I'm concerned maybe what, you know, and, and the guy in the article really had a good... Oh, from the reading, Jeff yeah, Vanderstelt's uh, uh, yeah, article, yeah, yeah. Yeah, from the book, he, you know, met the lady on the plane. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Which is much easier. Which, and, and we'll get to this, but one, one of my favorite ways to actually engage in conversations about the gospel is to ask someone, tell me what you think I believe. Because what that does, like, is, like I'm, I'm not going to start with me saying, hey, you're a sinner and you need Jesus. That's true. And we need to get to that point at some point. But, but so often there are things that they have come to believe incorrectly about me, about Christianity, about the gospel, about Jesus, etc., that I want to deconstruct because, man, if we're, if we're talking about Jesus and we're, and he has a different picture of who Jesus is, like, let's, like, you keep using that name. I don't think it means what you think it means. Like, like how, do we, how do we deconstruct some of that and, and explain who Jesus is? Because the Jesus they've rejected is probably a Jesus I reject. It's not the Jesus of Scripture. And so there's some unlearning that people have to do. That's a great point. Uh, Stephen, did you have your hand up as well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a cultural aspect of feeling, like, well, you know, I probably shouldn't talk about it here. It, it might be unprofessional. It may be, it may be against a policy at work. If you're having a conversation, if you're a, a teacher or whatever uh, the policy may be of your employer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Benita, do you have one? Uh-huh. That's, that is the unforgivable sin now. Yeah, yeah. 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 We're on edge. It's easier to offend. Yeah. I, like, I, I totally get it. And that, that is a, that's a unique obstacle right now in our time. No, no, you're right. You're right. To the coughing point, maybe you guys heard this and this is probably inappropriate, but I heard somebody once say, or maybe it was a tweet, is like, I used to cough to cover up farts. Now I fart to cover up coughs. Um, I think it's pretty funny. But um, I mean, I don't do that. Um, okay, so here, here's what I'd like to do. I want to talk about, there, there, are, there are multiple obstacles we could talk about. We could go all night about this. I'm going to put them into two broad categories. There are cultural obstacles and there are personal obstacles. Cultural obstacles and personal obstacles. And so what I mean by cultural is these are obstacles, kind of what Benita was mentioning is that, you know, they're just in general, people just seem to be more agitated on edge, quicker to be defensive and label people and to not listen. And so these are more kind of what's, what's kind of out there in our culture that we're still complicit in. So I want to be careful. Th th these aren't obstacles that are like in those people. We're all complicit in creating this culture. And so the, the first obstacle, I'm just going to mention three briefly. The first one is the obstacle of authenticity, of authenticity. And this is kind of the, based in the cultural narrative, of, hey, be true to yourself. You know, follow your heart, be, be you, follow your dreams, do what makes you happy. And, and really, this, this obstacle is rooted in a rejection of any real kind of meta-narrative. If you remember, we use that term in talking about the biblical storyline, that the Bible is a meta-narrative, a grand story 
that makes sense of all stories. And within this obstacle, because of the, the, the value of authenticity, of being true to yourself, which in, in some ways there's a goodness to that, but it's been taken to such an extreme that we now have an infinite or a, a, like millions of centers of the universe because what I believe to be true is different from yours. And so be true to yourself. And what this produces is really an inability to even ha- know how to interact because if, if, what, if you being true to yourself is different from what I mean by being true to myself, what happens when those things conflict? And so it's really cool and popular, like, hey, be true to yourself, do what makes you happy, provided that the thing that you do that makes you happy doesn't you know, inflict upon me. It's like, what happens when that, when that happens? And so here's, here's what I wanna do. When I present these obstacles, instead of offering a, here's the judo move that you do to kind of beat your opponent, which is so often how we tend to think about evangelism, like, how do I win? I mean, we even use that language in evangelism. How do I win them to Christ? And I think that's the wrong term, it's the wrong verb. Uh, We'll get to that in a second. But here's what I want to suggest. There is such a hollowness to this way, this value of authenticity. And there's an easy way to get into it without trying to be snarky uh, or without trying to be overly critical. But but it is true. So uh, Carl Truman uh, is a great uh, cultural commentator and theologian. He he says this kind of about this, this authenticity value. He says, once the basis for discussion lacks any agreed on meta narrative, a grand story, if we can't agree on a meta narrative, then it is doomed, the conversation is doomed to, ge- to degenerate into nothing more than the assertion of opinions and preferences. That's absolutely what happens. When we don't have a grand story that we're all adhering to, then we just devolve into my preferences over yours. And so who wins out? And so what I want to suggest is instead of a statement that you make to that person or in that moment, I want to offer each to these obstacles an engaging question, an engaging question. Here's the question to this obstacle of authenticity. What happens when there is conflict between two people who are being true to themselves? What happens when there is conflict between two people who are being true to themselves? Now this question, th- this is not like the, now, you know, ask this question and this person will repent and believe in Jesus the next morning. Like, I'm not saying that, but by offering a question to an obstacle, one, you're, you're having a posture of humility and listening and engaging in conversation instead of belittling or demeaning their way of believing that, hey, be true to yourself, follow your heart. Yes, that's hollow and that's really deceptive and, and frankly from the devil, but by start, if you start there, like, hey, be true to yourself, devil, like that's not going to get very far. But if you begin with the question, hey, so, but what do you do when two people whose hearts want two different things that are antithetical? What, what do you do in that moment? And how, how do you reconcile that? And so now you're asking a, conver- a question that engages conversation. Again, that's not the surefire silver bullet way to bring someone to Christ, but it's a way of addressing this obstacle that leads to conversation. The second obstacle I'm going to call disenchantment. Disenchantment. I can't spell and talk at the same time. This is kind of the idea or the belief that there's nothing beyond the material world. That all that exists is purely what we can observe with our empirical senses, you know? Uh, This is kind of an evolutionary, humanistic, materialistic way of viewing the world. Uh, Some philosophers refer to it as the idea of the imminent frame that we live within a closed system. There is nothing outside the closed system. We don't believe in transcendence. We don't believe in the spiritual. 
And, and, and frankly, this is also a very hollow, in fact, more and more people are, are rejecting this kind of idea. This is actually becoming less and less of, of an obstacle in some ways. But I mentioned James K.E. Smith, the Christian philosopher, and he, he talks about this very idea of kind of losing this, this idea of, that we live in an enchanted world, a world that ha- is infused with beauty and wonder beyond description. He says this, all sorts of people feel themselves caught in these cross pressures pushed by eminence, the idea of, of disenchantment, the idea of a closed system, nothing but the material world. We feel pushed by eminence of disenchantment on one side, but also pushed by a sense of significance and transcendence on the other side. We are sealed off from enchantment, and the modern self is also sealed off from significance. And so while we might be able to say, and it sounds very intellectual, like the belief in God and the supernatural is so uh, pedestrian and and uh, primitive, you know, like clearly like we've proven that, that God doesn't exist. All that exists is the material world. And so, so here's the engaging question to ask. So instead of, instead of saying, nuh-uh, like that's not really helpful, or just pointing to Genesis and say, God made it in six days, like, again, those are helpful conversations. But the engaging question to ask in this setting with this obstacle is, where do you find your basis of purpose, value, and beauty? Where, what is the basis upon which you find and establish purpose, value, and beauty? What PJ said, like, what's your why? Where do you get your why? Where does your foundational why come from? What, where does beauty come from? What is the basis? Of, and again, that doesn't solve the question. That doesn't lead this person to Jesus immediately. But can you see how asking that question to this obstacle at least allows the opportunity for further conversation? So uh, we, have, we have authenticity, disenchantment, and then the third one is pluralism. Pluralism. And, and this is kind of the idea, it's similar to authenticity, but pluralism is the idea that you have your truth and I have my truth. That, that truth is relative and that there are multiple paths to God. And so you have your path and you call it Jesus. I have my path and I call it wh- whatever it may be. And it's all, it's all leading to the same end. It's all leading to the same path, to the same end result. So there's no one true religion. We all have some part of the truth. And again, that sounds like, man, that sounds very inclusive. That sounds warm and inviting. And and to say that Jesus is the only way and the only truth and the only life, like, man, that feels very closed-minded. And so how do I respond to that? And again, I think the engaging question here is this, is who, like, for you to claim that all paths lead to the same end is actually a rather fantastically arrogant claim. And so so the engaging question is this, who has the ability to see that there is no one true religion? Who has the ability to actually say, like, hey, all, all truths, all paths lead to the same God? Who is it that possesses that kind of transcendent perspective to see all these paths leading to the same God? You, you've probably heard the, uh, the, the five blind men and the elephant metaphor. If you haven't, I'll, I'll quickly say it. You have five blind men that they come across an elephant in the field. And each of them has a different part of the elephant. One blind man has the trunk. And he says, oh, it is, it is a snake. I, I, I'm experiencing and encountering a snake. The other blind man has the legs. Like, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. It's a tree. It's this strong, sturdy trunk that I'm holding on to. And then the other guy has the, has the tusk. He's like, you guys are blind, you idiots. Uh, that's a joke because they're all blind. And so, and so he says, he's got the, the trunk. He's like, no, it's a spear. It's sharp and it's sturdy. And the point is, the metaphor is that w- the way it's told is that they all have some part of the truth. 
And so we all have our religious paths leading to something. The way this metaphor breaks down is that it assumes that somebody can see the whole elephant. And, and that's exactly where this pluralistic obstacle breaks down. Who is it that possesses that kind of perspective to see that all paths lead to the same God? Like, wow, what vantage point do you have? Like, well, like what mountain did you ascend to be able to see this perspective? And so the question is, who has the ability to see that there is no one true religion? So again, there's others we can list, but these are just a few I would mention in terms of the cultural obstacles. So let me pause there before we kind of turn to the personal ones, questions, comments, thoughts, pushback on the cultural obstacles. Okay, so now we're gonna turn to the personal ones and and these will go really quick. The first one I'm gonna say is, is suffering. And by personal, this is where I would say when you're talking to someone and and they're speaking about things related to their experiences. And so again, these were more kind of cultural. These are narratives that influence how we think and talk and believe about things. These are a little bit more personal. They're closer to home. Uh, They're they're within our personal experience. And so this is suffering. And so, so this is less of a philosophical question of like, how can a good God allow evil and suffering? That's a, that's a great question. It's one we should think through. But, but this is more of a personal like, hey, I have gone through great tragedy. I, I have lost a loved one. I, I, I had to bury my two-year-old son. I, like, there, there's suffering that someone experiences. How do you respond to that? And so C.S. Lewis talks about how there are, there are questions about the problem of evil and suffering that are, require cold answers and warm answers. The cold answers are the philosophical ones. Like, how could a good God allow evil and suffering? And so that's a philosophical question, and it's kind of asking for a cold answer. But these are the questions that come that demand a warm answer. They're not looking for a syllogism. They're not looking for an argument. They're not looking for an article. They're looking for someone who can understand and empathize with them. And so this is what we need. We need warm answers to these kinds of obstacles. And so the engaging question for the suffering obstacle is this, uh, is I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Would you be willing to share your experience with me? Which may, which may kind of fall like very disappointingly flat for some of you. Like that doesn't get to the heart of the problem of suffering. But again, if we are to be a people who are about to declare the good news of Jesus, our suffering servant who came to make our problems his problems, who suffers with us and for us, then we should embody in our declaration of this truth, the very person and the very characteristic of Jesus. Do we have the ability to sit with and understand and experience and know their suffering intimately so that we can show compassion, but also so we now know how to more tailor fit the gospel message to them? And so that obstacle of suffering requires the question of beginning first with saying, I'm sorry that you went through this. Would you be willing to share your experience with me? And so often, uh, this is, sometimes we just don't know how to get past that, or we tend to theologize or try to explain or give cold answers to very warm questions. The, The second obstacle is the obstacle of religion. The obstacle of religion. And what I mean by this is that oftentimes there is some backstory or a wound from religious experience. This is becoming increasingly common in our day is that people have some backstory. I would say, I don't know a percentage, but I mean, it's, it's a very high percentage. I feel like every other conversation I have with someone about faith, there is some wounded past 
of, of a religious leader, a pastor, somebody who took advantage of them, abused them in some way, shape, or form. And, and so there are, so this is a situation where it's, it's spiritual abuse. It's, it's, they felt alienation. Uh, they felt dismissed. They were, uh, they were judged. There, there was hypocrisy. There was racism, wh- whatever it may be. They felt something from the church. And it doesn't mean that their lived experience is gospel truth. But if we're not willing to at least sit with them in that, we're not showing that, that we have an ability to understand and relate to them. And so sometimes this situation uh, is something that I, I think not necessarily you have to own and apologize as though you are complicit in it, but as a member of the body of Christ where what happens to one impacts the other, there should be a sense in which we should kind of apologize and recognize, man, I'm sorry that that was your experience. That people who are a part of my family, my body did this to you. Would you be willing to share more of this with me? And so similar to the suffering question, the engaging question is this, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Would you be willing to experience it with me? It's the same question. It's just a different kind of suffering. And so it's the same kind of engaging question, but it's willing to understand their story. And, and as a side note, this was something Dr. Kurt Thompson, uh, if you guys were at his event a couple weeks ago, he shared this with our staff at a training meeting. And he said this, never ever, when you're dealing with someone who has some kind of pain or hardship or difficulty, never ask the question, what is wrong with you? But instead ask the question, what happened to you? And I think that is a really important question because when you say what is wrong with you, you're, you're assuming that the problem entirely resides within them. And in one sense, that's true. What resides within us is sin. We are complicit in the problems that we create. But it's not always that we are the, the perpetrators of sin. We're also the victims of sin of others. We are not just those that have sinned against others, but there are those who have sinned against us. And so asking the question instead of what is wrong with you, ask the question, what happened to you? And so instead of saying, why are you so bitter? Why do you hate the church? What is wrong with you? Ask the question, hey, what happened? What, what's, what was the part of your story that got you to this place where you just, you cannot stand Christians? I, I would love to know. Be curious about their story instead of being so defensive. Sometimes we feel as though we have to be Jesus's like defense attorneys or his PR agent. Like, oh, he's getting bad press and Jesus is down in the polls. And it's like, he'll be fine. Okay. We don't need to feel as though we have to defend him. But can we in this moment be sympathetic? And so, so then the last personal obstacle are the obstacles of questions and doubts. And I know some of you can't stand the fact that I've gone between all uppercase and some lowercase writing. And so, it's, that's, sorry, uh, forgive me for that. Uh, and so this is maybe the more common obstacles we think of, the, the questions that people have, the doubts that they have. Th- this would be around like, man, how, how could God create the world? How can you believe in a creator God? How do you reconcile faith and science? How can there be a good God and evil in the world? Uh, how can we trust the Bible? Is it historically accurate? Uh, why, why should I be a part of a church when so many Christians are hypocritical? Like, there's a lot of questions and doubts that these are more conversations. This does require us to have a knowledge of how we engage in conversation. So, so the engaging question here, what I would say is this, is, is to ask them this, what would it take for you to be convinced of God's existence or, or the truth claims of Christ? Just what would it take? You're not promising that like I can answer all your questions and I can lead you down this path of truth, but you're just kind of saying, hey, what would it take? And it's, you're not like a car salesman, like, what can I do to get you into the body of Christ today? Like, you're not trying to close this deal. You're just saying, hey, what is the barrier? What is that, like, that hurdle? And for some people, it's probably a collection of things. 
But for many of them, it's, it's probably just this one thing. And so often when I dig into questions and doubts, it's usually rooted in something here. It's a suffering, it's a hurt, it's a wound, it's an abuse of some kind. And so asking that question, what would it take for you to be convinced that God exists and to believe in the truth claims of Christ in the scripture? And I, I think that uh, that is, I think that it's a great question. It's a helpful question. And, and then if they ask and, and, and you don't know what to say, be okay saying, I, man, that's a great question. I don't know. And I, I want to look into that. Can you give me some time? Uh, can I, like, I would love to look into this. I'd love to talk to my friends, my pastor, like whomever. Would you give me that time to, to look into it? And what you will be, like, I think so often we feel as though we're going to let that person down. And so often when we have the humble posture of saying, I don't know, it's like, oh, you, you actually don't know. Like you're not one of those arrogant Christians who thinks they have all the answers put together. I think there's something about our humility in those moments that can actually be very compelling and make us look human to people. And so again, the, the, the engaging question there is what would it take for you to be convinced of God's existence and the truth claims of Christ? And then when they ask that, like, man, that's a great question. I don't know. And if you do know, offer the answer and engage in conversation. But at least you have what they've identified as the obstacle. Okay, so let's pause there. We're going to go to our, our tables for discussion uh, round two. But, but really quick, any other questions, comments, or things I can clarify in these obstacles, the cultural ones or the personal ones? Yeah, Susie. Yes. Oh, thank you. Yes. Absolutely. If, if you didn't hear what our wise sister Susie said, is that that these these are not just questions you do in one sitting. These, these are not just like, hey, like what happened to you? Okay, cool. Well, bye. It's just like, yeah, it might take years. Yeah, I'll see. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, it might take, I'm glad you said years. It's like, I, I think again, in our fast pace, we want things done. Like, I think we want our evangelism to, I think we want God to move quicker and just like news alert. God moves slow, y'all. He moves slow. And so I think absolutely, that is a beautiful, wise word. I appreciate that. Okay. Let's go to tables, uh, round two discussions, and then we will wrap up with some more helpful thughts and practices for sharing the gospel. Oh yes. Yeah. Benita. someone to to lead draw someone to Jesus but in any of those kinds of conversations there has to be a relationship yeah it yeah. has to be relational and that's where she's saying it could take years yeah or, yeah you know but it, if they don't see how much they how much we care or that we're willing to invest time and energy and into a relationship mm -hmm. to really get to know their heart yeah then they're just words. Yep, yep. And then, like I said, what the Spirit can do in a church service or at wherever, not to take the, that away, but our part in all of this is to build those relationships. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you didn't hear Benita, yeah, that, that maintaining a relationship is so vital and because, because people can sniff out when, when there's an ulterior motive, you know? But uh, Jeff Vanderselt, who wrote the article that you guys read this week, he talks about the difference between ulterior motives and ultimate motives. An ulterior motive is a motive that is hidden, that, that someone feels hoodwinked. They're like, oh, you're just hanging out with me and getting to know me just so that you can kind of convert me. 
But an ultimate motive is like, hey, it's, I want to be clear. Like that, what I, I want you to know Jesus. But that doesn't mean that my relationship with you is not sincere and authentic. And so there is a difference between ultimate motives and ulterior motives. So, okay, uh, so table discussion two, and then we'll come together for our last portion on practices. All right, y'all. Uh, let's go ahead. So I, I want to make sure that we have some time for some, some practical steps and some uh, next steps that we can take in terms of how we share the gospel in word and deed. And so the, the last point for the night is the practices we need on Monday. And so um, and one, uh, one precursor I'll mention, we're really excited in January, uh, we're going to be in, so you guys are the first people to know about this, uh, is we're going to be preaching through the Gospel of John, which we're excited about. Uh, but we're also going to be embarking on a season where we're giving more time and attention to uh, the, the discipline of evangelism. And so we'll share more information about that, but we're really excited to have kind of just a renewed focus on how we grow in this area. And, and so, but again, when we think about how we share the gospel, there's so many barriers and obstacles. Um, Emily was mentioning at one point um, how it can feel as though like, if, if I don't have all the answers to the questions, how can I even begin, you know? And so, um, but I, I think that there's, the, the metaphor I use is that like, some of you know, probably all of you know, I love tacos. That's one of my favorite foods. And, and when I'm passionate about tacos, like when I tell you like, oh my gosh, I just went to Bonito Michoacan. It's one of my favorites. You've got to try it. If you can imagine, what if, what if someone says, yeah, okay, but when, when was that restaurant established? Well, I don't know, but you, you gotta try the tacos. They're so good. Okay, yeah, but what's the name of the manager? Oh, I have no idea, but the tacos are amazing. You've got to come try the tacos. Yeah, okay, but, but where did they get their meat and who butchers it? And what's the name of the butcher? And, and what was his grandmother's name? It's just like, I may not be able to answer all of those questions about Bonito Michoacan and where they get their delicious asada steak from, but let me tell you about what I've experienced and you've just got to come see this. In the same way, when we have come to believe in the truth of Jesus, we don't have to have all of the answers figured out. And hear me, church, I'm not, I'm, that's not an excuse to be stupid and lazy and ignorant about the truth. We should continue to deepen our understanding of Jesus and the truths of Scripture. But don't feel this pressure that I've got to have it all figured out in order to be even have a conversation. Just invite someone to tacos, y'all. That, that's, I mean, quite literally, it's a great way to share the gospel is over tacos. But I think we can have that, uh, that, that mindset in mind. Like when I think of the woman at the well in John 4, Jesus, she has this encounter with Jesus. She doesn't know much about him other than the fact that he knows everything about her, everything that she has done and loves her anyway. And she goes back into town and, and what, what does she say? Come see about a man who told me about everything I've ever done and, and, and declared beautiful truths over me. In the same way, I don't have to have all the answers. Is he the Messiah? Is he the one that we've been looking for? How has he fulfilled all the Messianic prophecies? Man, I don't know. But come see about a man who has known everything about me and loved me still. And so, so when we think about sharing the gospel, we do not have to have all of the answers figured out, but we should know the gospel. And so here's what I want to frame this as. So the, the steps we need, the practices we need, the first is we need to know the gospel story. And so, so if you remember, we did that definition in the, uh, the mark on takes up their cross. The good news of the gospel, if you remember our definition, which I don't have memorized, but the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, which if you trust him and above all others, saves you from sin and for the renewal of all things. And so we need to be a people who know the gospel and who don't just know it intellectually, but who it, it, it changes us, it influences, it, sh it shapes us, it brings a joy to us. We need to be a people who know the gospel story. And, and we share it because we enjoy it. And, and a mark that you have come to know the gospel story is that it is something that you delight in. 
And we tend to share the things that we enjoy. In fact, there's one of my favorite metaphors was uh, during a road trip to Colorado, we had our Lula and Jane were about like maybe five and three at the time, or maybe six and four or whatever. And they're watching Cinderella for like the eight billionth time, okay? So they, like, they've watched this movie so many times. I'm driving and they're watching and they're like, they had the headphones on and they're like too big for their heads and they're just watching like this. And they're both watching. And Lula just starts hitting Jane. It's their, their favorite part when the mice are singing, Cinderella, Cinderella, Nightingale. It's, it's their favorite part. And Lula, just ecstatic, is just hitting Jane. She's like, Jane, are you watching this? Like she, like she couldn't help in this moment. She's watching her favorite thing in the world and she has to bring somebody else in to enjoy it. In the same way, when we've come to understand the truth of what we have received in Christ, the culmination of that joy is found in the sharing of it. We all know that to be true. Like we know that like the share button, it's at the bottom of every YouTube video, every website, every like stupid meme that we come across because we love sharing. Our culture knows that joy is amplified in the thing that we delight in when it is shared. But it requires us knowing the gospel story. Uh, So secondly, we need to know the gospel and your story. And this is sometimes where part of why we, we think we don't know the gospel is because we don't know how to connect it to our story. And so we know the gospel truth and we know kind of our story, but how have those come together? How has the truth of Jesus impacted and shaped your narrative? How does it speak uniquely to your brokenness? Yes, we are all broken sinners in general, but the way in which my brokenness is made manifest and how, it is, how I've been broken throughout my life looks very different from all y'all. And so do we know the gospel in our story uniquely so that what we're sharing with others isn't just a, an impersonal message, but it's something that has been transformed and embody, is embodied within our own experience. So we need to know the gospel in our story. But then third, and this is where we've kind of already been talking about this, we need to know the gospel and others' story. We need to know the story of others. And, and this is kind of what Benita was referring to in terms of the, the importance of relationship, of, of not just coming to someone, and yes, again, hear me, in one sense, you don't need to know anything about another person in order to share the gospel with them. That's, that's absolutely true. But man, when you look at how Jesus conducted his life, he didn't just go and preach impersonally. Even the woman at the well, before he says anything about himself, he's inquiring of her, learning about her. In the same way, if we want to more tailor fit the gospel message to people's lives, to their needs, their questions, their brokenness, We need to know their story, which is why it's so more important to ask those engaging questions of what happened to you? Tell me your story. What is your background? You might have come across this line in our reading from Jeff Vanderstelt, but he says this really helpfully. He says, if we don't also listen. So he talks about the importance of sharing. We need to talk. We need to share and and speak the truth because we have news to declare. But if we don't also listen, we tend to share the good news of Jesus in a way that applies primarily to our lives, the way it was good news to us, but fails to address the situations others are facing. And again, that's a good, we do need to know the gospel in our story, but if we don't know the stories of others, we tend to speak the gospel with our own accent and, and, and sometimes it's hard for other people to hear because that's not their accent. We need to learn their accent. It doesn't mean we change the message, but we have to learn their accent in order for them to hear it afresh. And so he goes on to say, if, um, the way, 
It's just a long run on sentence. I'm trying to, yeah, let me just back up. If we don't also listen, we tend to share the good news of Jesus in a way that applies primarily to our lives, the way it was good news to us, but fails to address the situations others are facing. We can become proclaimers of the good news while remaining ignorant of the ways in which others need to hear it. Listen for the longing. Listen for the pain. Listen for the need for Jesus. And, and again, that's where those obstacles of pain and suffering and, and the, the pains of religion uh, are so important for us to listen to. So a great way into conversation about faith is through the story of others. And so, yes, we can start with Jesus, absolutely. But if you want to, so I already mentioned one of my favorite questions to engage conversations of faith is to say, because, you know, when I'm on a plane or I'm getting my hair cut, like, so what do you do? It's like, oh, here we go. And so it's like, I'm like, I'm a pastor. It's just like, you know, I get like, I'm a professional communicator. It's like, I, like there's a way, like, it's, it's hard to avoid, like, identifying myself as a Christian, which is, which is a good thing. But I just like, like, tell me what you think I believe. The second, my second favorite question, maybe my first actually, is instead of asking someone like, do you believe in Jesus? Or where will you go if you die tonight? Like, again, those are, those are kind of like morbid, dark questions. No one talks like that, you know? But what we do generally is we ask questions like, hey, where did you grow up? Well, who is your best friend? Where did you go to school? What were some of your interests? What was your family life like? The way I try to ask questions of faith in that way is to say, hey, did you have a faith background as a child? And that question, it's, it, like, it just sounds like I'm asking about their childhood, right? It doesn't sound like, hey, tell me what you believe about eternity. It's like, I'm asking just something about their childhood that anybody can interact with. And it's like, oh yeah, I grew up Catholic, but uh, we kind of went on Christmas and Easter. It was like, yeah, we were, we were part of a cult. You know, it's like, th- these are all conversations I've had with people. Like, yeah, we were, I was raised in a Wiccan cult. Like, oh, okay, that's, uh, what do you get a Wiccan for Christmas? I don't know. And so like, that, that was the next question. I didn't ask that. But, um, but that question is easier to engage in than tell me what you believe about Jesus. Because like right now, that's a harder conversation. But when you're talking about your past, like, oh yeah, well, I, I grew up in church and, and, but then we kind of walked away. Oh, why, like, why are you not in church now? Or did something happen? What happened to you? There's a curiosity in those questions. Instead of just saying, you're a sinner, you need Jesus. Why don't you believe him? There's a curiosity in that question that I think leads to greater fruitful conversation. So again, the question is, um, how did I word it? Yeah, did you have a faith background growing up? And if they say no, it's just like, yeah, no, my parents were like, we had no religion or I had a friend who went to church or it's like, uh, did you ever feel like bad that the fact that your parents never like kept you from church? Like there's just some interesting follow-up conversations. Just have a dialogue about their life and don't feel the need to seal the deal and save this person by the end of your haircut, you know? I think we have that pressure. Emily, you were mentioning that. We feel this pressure. And y'all, we have to believe, like one of the things, one of the reasons why I think evangelism is so hard for us is we do, we believe in this arrogant posture that is up to us. We are not the salesmen of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are witnesses. That's, that's quite literally what the scriptures refer to us as. We are witnesses. We're just declaring what we've seen and heard. We're, we're, we're not salesmen, we're, we're not defense attorneys. We are declaring what we have seen and heard. So know the gospel story, delight in it, Know the gospel in your story. How has Jesus impacted your life? And know the gospel and others' stories. And so let me, let me offer, so these, those are kind of broad um, practices we can take, but let me give just four very simple practical steps, and they're going to sound really hollow, but we need to pray. We've already talked about this. We need to listen. We need to share, and we need to invite. Pray, listen, share, invite. 
And so what I would say is the pray, and then we're going to learn more about this actually in January. What I would say is like, start praying for people by name in your life that you want to know Jesus. Pray for them regularly. And one thing we're going to start doing in January is something that we're calling 90 squared for nine, which is for 90 days, we're encouraging people to pray for nine people in their life for 90 seconds a day. For, for them to come to know the Lord, for, for what's going on in their lives, but to pray consistently for 90 days, 90 seconds a day for nine people. Who are the people in your life that you can pray for and connect with? And then, uh, and then listen. Again, this is, I mean, we, this is kind of the theme of what we've talked about a lot. But are we understanding people's stories? What their objections are? What are the barriers and obstacles? What are the pains? What has happened to them that keeps them from knowing the truth of Jesus? Listen well. And again, don't think that this is a person that needs to be won. This is a person that needs to be seen and understood and listened to so that we might be able to more effectively share the good news of Christ. Uh, but then share. I mean, and sometimes this is where we stop. We, we, we pray and we listen, but y'all, we, we do. We have to share. We have news to declare and proclaim. And so at some point we have to share. And maybe it starts with your own story. Maybe it starts with how Jesus impacted your story uh, before you're really getting into the fullness of what this gospel message is. But find a way to share with them. And in some ways, our cultural narrative of authenticity is actually in our favor. Like this, this value of like, hey, be true to yourself, follow your heart. Okay, well, let me tell you how, like, how I follow my heart. Like the way I've come to believe truth is in the person, the work of Jesus. And, and it's, it's really interesting when you kind of begin that way, people are a little bit less offended. Like when you're speaking to, this is how I have come to believe truth. Now, when you frame it in the context of it's what's true for me, it may not be true for you. That's not helpful. But we do need to share. But then another is, is invite. And, and this is not necessarily, I would say, in fact, don't invite them to church right away. I think, I think that the average person that comes to faith in Christ attends eight non-church sanctioned events in the life of a Christian before they come to faith. The average person who comes to faith in Christ attends eight non-church sanctioned events with their Christian friend before they even, uh, oh, sorry, before they even attend church. And so the invitation just may be not necessarily to the Lord's table, but to your dining room table. How are you inviting people into your life? Maybe it's meeting for coffee. Maybe it's engaging in their context or in their home. But, but also don't, don't be bashful about inviting them to church at some point. And so, th so these are, again, these aren't the silver bullets that, that will secure someone's eternal fate. Uh, but I believe just having these steps of praying, of listening, of sharing and inviting. And what I would suggest, and here uh, your, at your tables, you guys all have this little who is my neighbor grid. And this is going to be one of your assignments for this upcoming week. Uh, it's on page 70 of your workbook. And what I would encourage you to do, the instructions are on the back. But what we want you to do is to either in the place where you live or the place where you work or spend the majority of your time, I want you to identify, what is it? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight people. And so it may be the eight people that are, who live directly around you. It may be the eight people that work near you in your place of work. It may be just eight totally different people, but you can choose the context of who these people are. But what we want you to do is write down their name, write down a specific thing that you are going to pray for for them. And then what is your next step with them? And it, and it may just be that like, you're going to let them know you're praying for them. It may just be that you're going to spend time with them a bit more. You're going to hear their story, ask them questions, invite them to church, whatever it may be. What is your next step? 
And it doesn't have to be grandiose. Like don't 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 feel like it's like uh, I'm going to save them. It's just like don't like that's that's like way too uh, massive. But um, but I would say what are your next steps? And so the instructions are on the back. And this is just again this is not a guilt trip. This is not something that you must do to be a good Christian. It's a way for us to practice and put into practice uh, the work of what it means to share the gospel in word and in deed. And so, so if you have questions about it, again, the instructions are pretty clear on the back, uh, but fill this out. If you want to keep it on your fridge uh, as a regular reminder, it's uh, maybe too big for your Bible, uh, stick it in your back pocket or something. But, but I would encourage you to fill this out sometime this week. Discuss it with your table if you'd like next week. Uh, but that is our assignment for this upcoming week um, leading up to next Tuesday. So, all right, uh, let's turn to our last round of table discussions uh, for about eight minutes, and then we'll do our last wrap up, and then we will be on our way out of here, y'all. All right, y'all, we're going to wrap up here. So we have two minutes left. Um, uh, one thing, I, I may have mentioned this in the Bible lecture, and I forgot to mention it tonight, but if you remember our framework for the biblical narrative of, of ought, is, can, will, how those can be questions into the Christian faith, um, instead of starting with like, God created the world. You're a sinner. You need Jesus so that you can go to heaven. All those things are true. Imagine how the conversation would go if you began with the question, is the world the way it ought to be? What do you think is wrong with the world? What can be done about it? And what do you think will one day be? And you're, again, th those invite people into conversations. Please don't hear this as a way to like avoid speaking about Jesus explicitly. That's not what I'm su suggesting. I'm trying to give us ways into conversations and into people's lives um, that I believe the most effective way is through question and dialogue. Uh, so, so I, I want to close with this quote and then I'll, I'll give us a, a last piece of instruction. But uh, Madeline L'Engle, who wrote A Wrinkle in Time, probably one of my favorite quotes from her. In fact, maybe my favorite about evangelism. And she says this, we draw people to Christ, not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Isn't that beautiful? I, lo I, I love that. And it's just, again, what we're pointing people, it's just, it's the woman at the well. It's like, man, I don't know all the answers to your questions. And I will do my best to try to look into that, but come see about a man who knew everything I ever did and loved me in spite of that. And so, so here's what I want to do. I want to give us our, our uh, 30, second t 30 second takeaway. So take just 30 seconds. What is one thing you want to take away from tonight? Uh, an action step, a, a thought to ponder, a practice to implement, uh, a question to uh, explore, 30 seconds, and then I'll benedict us out of here. All right, I'm going to share uh, uh, from, from 1 John chapter 3. Oh, one last thing I forgot. Sorry, sorry, I apologize. Um, we'll share a little bit about this more in two weeks, I believe. One thing to kind of keep in mind is that if uh, one, of, one of the beautiful things that comes out of church from Monday, this happens kind of 
incidentally, but we'd love to even encourage it if that's something you want to explore, but we're always looking for new people to help lead community groups. And so if that is an interest of yours coming out of Church for Monday, we'd love to explore that with you. Sometimes there are groups that form from tables that, that can happen. That's not the expectation by any means. But if you have an interest in stepping into a role of helping lead a community group, uh, myself, in fact, Nikki Deeker would be the person to talk to. She's a lot more fun to talk to than me. But, uh, but I would encourage you, if you have questions about that, there's a great next step coming out of Church for Monday. We'll talk more about that in two weeks. But I want to at least plant that seed in your head. So... Um, okay, so our benediction I want to share from 1 John chapter 3. Uh, I, I just think beautifully captures what it means that the gospel should be seen and heard in our Monday lives. And so I know it's not Sunday, but if you want to extend your hand to receive this, this blessing, um, hear these words. Brothers and sisters, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for others, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk,